0: So I want to welcome you again to Seven Mile Road Church. Uh, My name is Ajay Thomas, I'm a pastor here that is helping to plant this church with a team of church planters. Uh, You'll have to excuse my voice, I have allergies or something, I promise it's not swine flu. Um, But my voice sounds sexier than ever, so I'm happy about that. Um, It is a joy to gather with you. Some of you are here for the first time, and so we welcome you. Some of you have been with us for one or two of our preview services and some of us gather here every week. Uh, it's just a joy for us to worship the Lord and to do so with you. If you hang around Seven Mile Road for any time at all, uh, whether you're new or whether you've been with us for some time, you're going to see that there are three words that are sort of central to life in this community. Uh, three words that are sort of who we are and what we're hoping to be. They sort of shape and define and inform and mold. and They're everything of who we're hoping to become. They're As one of our teammates called it, pillars upon what's happening here is standing upon. If you go to our website, you'll see those three words in big blocks. You'll see it on our signs, our printed material. You'll hear it in conversation with us all the time. Those are the words, gospel, mission, and community. Gospel, mission, and community. Everything we are, everything we're hoping to be, is sort of shaped and found in those three words. Gospel, mission, and community. They're the filter through which everything goes. Everything we're shooting for uh, is right there. In, in one sense, that's what we are about. And so what we're going to do over the next few preview services, over the next three, is take some time to unpack each of those words. If that's what we're building this new church on, well then we need to spend some time looking at what those three words are about. And so that's what we're going to do. We're going to look at Jesus and his gospel. And next month we'll look at Jesus and his community. And the month after that we will look at Jesus and his mission. Today we start with the first of those. We're tackling the first of those words. We're looking at Jesus and his gospel. Now when you talk about the gospel, I need you to hear that we're talking about something really Big. I need you to hear that. Whether you've been in church your whole life or whether this whole Christianity, church, God thing is new to you, the gospel is really big. In fact, for us, those other two words, community and mission, are birthed out of the gospel and informed by the gospel and fueled by the gospel and shaped by the gospel. The, the gospel is the core, it's the beginning from which all the others come out. The gospel is really big. It's the central message of the Christian faith. I know in Christianity you'll find lots of churches and lots of expressions and lots of denominations, but at the core of the Christian church, of any true Christian church, you find the gospel, one central message. The gospel is the central message of the scriptures. Like if someone handed you a Bible and said, look, what is this whole book about? Sixty-six books, and in these black ones, 1,042 pages. In four words or less, give me a summary of the whole thing. You wouldn't have to bat an eye, you wouldn't have to flinch, you wouldn't have to pause for a second. You could shout back as confidently as you could. It is about Jesus and his gospel. That's what it's about. That is the central message of the scriptures. And so if the central message of the scriptures is the gospel, and the central message of the Christian faith is the gospel, then it makes sense that the central core of any church would be the gospel. So then it behooves us to start this church by starting with the gospel, by looking at the gospel. And in this book, and in these 66 books, and in these 1,042 pages, you will be hard-pressed to find a more concise compact, concrete, clear presentation of the gospel than you will in Ephesians chapter 2. In Ephesians chapter 2. You won't find everything that you could say about the gospel there because I need you to remember, the gospel is really big. You need to hear that. You're never going to outrun the lengths of the gospel. You're never going to outsoar the heights of the gospel. You're never going to outswim the depths of the gospel. No, if you really get the gospel... You're only going to grow in your understanding of its implications and applications for your life all the more broadly, all the time. The Gospel's big. After all, if it takes 66 books and 1,042 pages to unpack the Gospel, well then the Gospel is really big. <clears throat> and yet at the same time, in about 10 verses or so, in Ephesians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul gives one of the most lucid clear, compact teachings of the Gospel, presentations on the Gospel that you will find in all the Scriptures. It's on page 976 of your Black Bibles. It's the passage that Jeremy read for us. As you turn there, I want to turn our attention to God. We'll just begin our time asking Him for His help. Pray, and then we'll dive into this text and unpack it and mine it together. So let's pray, and then we'll look at Ephesians 2 and the Gospel of Jesus. Father, we, your people, come to you and we ask that you would come and speak truth to us now. Tell us the truth about ourselves and tell us the truth about yourself. And let those two truths collide somewhere in our hearts today. We confess that on our own we are resistant to hear truth. Jesus said of people like us that we love the darkness and hate the light. So would you come and illuminate our minds and flood our hearts and open our ears and open our eyes that we might truly see and hear and believe and understand. That we might encounter Jesus and his gospel and that it might make a difference even in this hour. You need to do that because we cannot. And so we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Alright, so here we go. As Paul begins to unpack the gospel in Ephesians chapter 2, he begins with some really bad news. Now, if you've been around Christianity or the church for any time at all, that sort of surprises you, maybe even alarms you, because you know that the gospel is good news. Right? That's what the word means. It's literally translated from the original language, and it means good news. And it is. But often, for good news to be really good, it's got to be pressed up against some really bad news. Often, the good news comes shining forth in all its goodness when it's pressed up against some dark, bad news. Like if you're sitting at the doctor's office, and the doctor comes running in, and he wipes his brow, and he catches his breath, and he says, Man, i got some really great news for you. You're not going to die. You're going to be okay. Now, that might be good news, or it might be incomplete and alarm you a little bit because you're going, Die? Who said anything about die? Why are you even saying that? I'm 28 years old. I came with a cough, right? But, but now, what if you had been in the doctor's office and he looked at your cough and he said, Man, it looks like you have swine flu. And now 10 minutes pass and he comes running into the office and he wipes his brow and he catches his breath and he says, Man, I have really great news for you. You're not going to die. You're going to be Okay. Now, that is good news. It is glorious news. So it is with the gospel. The gospel is good news. It is great news. I swear it is the greatest news you will ever hear. But often for that good news to be really good, it's got to be pressed against some deep, dark news. And that's where the Apostle Paul begins. In Ephesians 2, in the first three verses, he begins with some really bad news. Listen to what he says. The Gospel starts with some really bad news and that bad news is that we are sinners. We are sinners. Now, can we be honest for a second? If we're honest, that hardly seems all that bad at all, right? I mean, some of you have heard that you were a sinner since like... You are two. You know how to cope with that. You've learned over the years how to deal with that. And some of you that are new to all this, there is no way a preacher is going to fear-monger you into believing something primitive, like we're sinners. It seems almost abstract and generic, hardly causes us to quake or tremble or quiver, that it seems harmless more than it does bad or devastating news. But in these first three verses, the Apostle Paul is going to distill what it means that we are sinners. So much so, that I'm almost positive that by the time he's done with these three verses, he will have bothered most of you. Maybe even offended all of us, myself included. Because the Gospel has some bad news that we are sinners, and it begins by saying, here's what that means. For one, it means you are dead In your trespasses and your sins. That's what he says. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Hear that. Dead. Dead. Apart from God, apart from his grace, apart from the gospel in your heart, your condition as a human being is that you are dead in your trespasses and your sins. He uses those two words, trespasses and sins. Trespass, this idea that there are boundaries that the God who made the universe has set, and you have crossed those boundaries. You've trespassed them. You've transgressed them. He has set rules, boundaries, and you have walked beyond them. That's the idea that we normally think of when we think of things like sin, that we have done things God has told us not to do. He also uses the word sin, this idea that We've not only just broken some things or done some stuff, but we've missed the mark. We've actually wrecked a relationship. We've ruined a relationship. That God had created us good, a good God, to enjoy Him, to enjoy one another, to enjoy the created order. And now, whether you're a Christian or not, something of that seems broken. Something of how this earth is running. And something of our relationships with one another seem conflicted and constrained and something of our relationship with God. That we are alienated from God. We've ruined the relationship. That in those trespasses and sins, we are dead. You need to hear that. That spiritually, you are a corpse. We assume that we sort of start off neutral and then drift towards good or drift towards evil. And the scriptures, whether you agree with it or not, Paul is saying... You're not born with a blank slate. You're born with a black slate. You're dead in your trespasses and your sins. You are dead in your spiritual life towards God. You're a corpse. You're lifeless and motionless towards God. No thoughts. You don't see corpses thinking or moving or walking. So is your relationship with God. That in your human condition, you are dead towards God. You cannot take a single step towards Him. Nor do you even want to. That you're not sick. Remember that. He's not saying you're sick and you just need to work harder to get better. You are dead. And your only hope is for some alien power to come and resurrect you to new life. Because there is no hope in and of itself for a dead corpse you are dead in your trespasses and sins but it gets still worse because he's going to continue and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked now first that seems a little bit odd because we've just gone through some pains to explain that we're lifeless and motionless and we do not take steps and now the apostle paul is saying but you're walking Which is it? But as you look closer, as you ponder that a little more, you let the weight of that hit your heart, and the horror of our condition comes forth. And that is that while we are dead towards God, we are all the while alive towards sin. We're dead towards God, spiritual corpses, but all the while we are alive towards sin. That we cannot take a single step Godward, but all the while, step after step after step, we are walking in trespasses and sin. That step after step, while we can't approach God, nor do we want to, we are walking step after step away from God. The scriptures use that word walk. In the scriptures, when it says that someone walked in a certain way, and he walked in righteousness, it doesn't mean that You know, he found a street called righteousness and walked. It's the idea of the course of his life, the sum of his life, the direction of his life, the sum of his being, the inclinations of his heart and mind. And so when the Apostle Paul says, we walked in trespasses and sins, the idea is that every inclination of your heart, every thought of your mind, every bit of your being is bent towards evil, bent away from God and towards sin you are all the while actively walking away from God. Step after step after step. That the sum of our being, the course of our lives, is swallowed up and consumed in self-centeredness and sin. We do not glorify God, we seek self. He unpacks that a little more in verse 3 and he says, "...among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh." Carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. That is, apart from God's grace in your life, your life consists of carrying out the passions of your flesh, the desires of your body and mind. Now that's specific things, like lusts of the flesh, like addictions and gluttony and pornography and perversions of a hundred kinds. But it's also more generally that the sum of your body and mind, the course of your whole being, is bent away from God, inclined towards self-centeredness, doing nothing to the glory of God. Now, I know our hearts want to fight a bit and say, listen, you're exaggerating a bit because we do good. We do want to do good. And the Apostle Paul would say, even the good that you do, is tainted with impure motives. And ultimately, it is not done to the glory of God, but for the satisfaction of self. You are walking, step after step, away from God. But it's still worse. It's still worse because he says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. In which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. So here's what he's saying. Not only are you a spiritual corpse, dead towards God, not only are you and I all the while alive towards sin, actively step after step walking away from him, we are also captive to the ways of this world and to the prince of the power of the air. The Bible is saying, look, I I know you don't see it, I know you don't get it, and you, you intellectuals won't buy it, but there is a supernatural realm behind all of this, with a good God and an evil enemy that are against one another. They're not equal, they're not the same, but there is a good God, an enemy, who is disobedient to God and wants to destroy us. And that we, as human beings, in our natural selves, are caught up in following him. The scriptures use that phrase, the prince of the power of the air. One pastor described that sort of like when we say, look, there's just an excitement in the air. When we say that, we don't mean that we can literally see excitement floating in the air. No, we mean that there's just this energy that's pervasive and widespread and it's catching everybody who's around up in it. It's influencing us all and we're breathing it in and out. Like if you're at Citizens Park, watching a game, you go, there's just an energy in the air. That means there's just this power throughout the stadium, and all of us who are there are just caught up in it. It's the oxygen we're breathing in and out. And the scriptures are saying that in this world, there is a power that is pitted against God, and a prince of that power, and his power is pervasive throughout the world. And you, in your natural self, are following that. It's the oxygen you're breathing in and out. You're caught up in the pattern of this world and in the prince of the power of the air. But it's still worse because he's not done. Because this is what he says in verse 3. Among whom we all once walked, lived. We, we all once lived in the passion of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Do you hear what he just said? By nature, we are children of wrath. By, by nature, I, I get that the scriptures are cutting across everything we assume in our culture. That we are born basically good, and the scripture saying, no, no, by nature you are an object of God's wrath. Your very nature is one worthy and deserving of God's wrath. We're not born blank slates, but rather black slates. You see, the scriptures are saying here, we are sinners not because we sin, but rather we sin because we are sinners. Say that again, because that's not just a clever sentence. We sin, we are sinners, not because we sin, but we sin because we are sinners. You sin because that is who you are, not just what you do. Your nature, inherited from your first parents, is that you are bent away, inclined away, predisposed away from God all the time. By your very nature... You and I are objects of God's wrath. Not his flighty anger, not the temper tantrum of a a, a teenage God. The just, righteous anger of a God against a sinful and rebellious people. And then, listen to what he says. This is all of us. We all once followed the passions of our flesh. That we are, by nature, children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Do you know what Paul has just done there? He has spread the net to encompass all of humanity. He's just extended the boundaries of his indictment against human beings to include all of us. Now you've got to hear that as the first hearers would have heard that. Remember, he's writing this letter to a church in Ephesus and to Ephesians. That's what we're reading—the letter to the Ephesians. And in Ephesus, if if you know about that city, it's this metropolitan, cosmopolitan, bright lights, big city in Asia Minor, first century. I mean, this is the hub of tourism and trade and culture and commerce, and this is where you go to vacation to party. This is Sin City. This is Las Vegas, New York City parts of Philly, whatever, right? This is that big city. And in that city, you'd find a bunch of people called Gentiles. And everybody knew who the Gentiles were. These were the guys who were polytheistic, many gods and pagans, and they were prone towards drunkenness and gluttony, and their worship consisted of sleeping with the temple prostitute as a part of their worship to their gods. And these guys heard about Jesus, and they start coming to the church at Ephesus, and they're interested. And you can imagine that Paul looks at them and says, You are dead in your trespasses and your sins. That you're walking actively away from God. You're a child of wrath, following the pattern of this world, and the prince of the power of the air. And and that might be hard to swallow, but you can at least see he's got a point. I mean, these guys are sleeping with prostitutes. But then, look at what Paul does. He says, we all, all of us, by nature like the rest of all mankind, because in Ephesus and at the church of Ephesus, there was another group of people, the Jews. The Jews who looked nothing like the Gentiles. The Jews who lived their whole lives going to the temple and reading the scriptures and following God's commands and who had spent their whole lives giving to the poor and being upright and moral and decent. They had spent their whole lives looking nothing like the Gentiles. In fact, they prided themselves for how different than they were than the Gentiles. And yet now Paul is saying, all of us. His net has now captured not only the Gentiles that you'd expect, but the Jews that you would have never expected. I mean, these were the children of the promise, and now Paul says, we all, by nature, are children of wrath. I imagine that when some of us hear this, we probably resist this like they would have resisted it then. Because it doesn't make sense to us. We imagine that our religion and our morality and our good deeds are somehow going to bridge the gap between God's holiness and our sin. And Paul says it doesn't work that way. You see, the Gentile, he kills. The Jew would never kill But only God and he knows of the anger that's hidden in his heart. What do you do with that? The Gentile, he watches pornography. The Jew would never do that. But only God and he knows of the lusts of his own heart. The Gentile cusses profanity all the time. The Jew would never cuss. And yet, what does he do with the maliciousness and slander in his own heart? You see, while they could perfect the outside and their behavior, they couldn't do anything, and neither can we, about the condition of our heart. And so God rightly says, All of us, all of us, by nature, are children of wrath. So then at the end of three verses, this is what the Apostle Paul has said that you are dead in your trespasses and sins, you're a spiritual corpse. That while you are lifeless and motionless towards God, you are all the while alive towards sin, actively walking away from God. That you are swept up and following the pattern of this world and the prince of the power of the air. That by your very nature you are worthy of God's wrath and that this is all of us. And what do you do with that? What do you do with that? I, I, I know what we want to do. I know what we want to do is we want to reason with Paul. We want to say, listen, Paul, you are one sad, depressed dude, right? I mean, you talk about pessimism. This guy, the glass is not half empty. There's a, a crack in the glass and all the water's leaking or there just is no glass. This is, this is one depressed guy. And, and so we want to say, Paul, listen we get that there's something broken in the world. Whether you're a Christian or not, you just turn on the evening news and you go, something's off with the wars and the genocide and the crime and the corruption. Something in the world at large and even within ourselves is off. But Paul basically, listen, we're good. And Paul would say, no, you are dead in your trespasses and sins. But Paul, we can get better. We as a society can progress. We can change No, you're dead in your trespasses and sins. You're caught up in the patterns of this world and it's only deteriorating. But Paul, we can do good, we can be better. No, you're dead in your trespasses and your sins. And even the good that you do is not done to the glory of God and is tainted with impurity. And so you are dead in your sins. Dead towards God. You are alive to sin. You are walking in sin. You are following the devil. You are by nature worthy of wrath. God's wrath rests on you. And this is all of us. And there is nothing you can do to change any of that. There is nothing you can do to change any of that. Nothing you can do to take a single step towards God. But God. But God. But God. Those are the first two words of verse 4, and they are the two best words you will ever hear. But God. We were dead, but God. It was over, it was done, but God, we were in our trespasses and sins, but God, we were slaves to Satan, but God, listen to what he says, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ by grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved, and through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. But God, when we could not get to him, but God came to us when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, but God came and made us alive. Are you hearing the good news of the gospel? Amen. Because the gospel has some really bad news, and that that is that you are a sinner. But it has some glorious news, and that is that Jesus is a Savior. Amen. The gospel tells you that you are lost, but that Jesus finds you. You are dead, but Jesus raises you to life. You are in your sin, but Jesus forgives you. The gospel says we are sinners, but God is a savior. Are you considering the good news of the gospel? The the exchange that has happened to your condition because of the gospel. Verses 1 to 3, we were dead in our trespasses and sins, but God. And verses 4 and following, we were raised with Christ to new life. You were dead. You could not save yourself. And so an alien power came and resurrected you to new life. But God, we were captive to Satan and to the pattern of this world. But God, verses 4 and following, has raised us up and seated us in the heavenly places with Christ Jesus. But God, think of that. You were citizens of the earth, alien towards heaven. And now God, through his gospel, has changed that so that your citizenship is in heaven and you are aliens and strangers on the earth. But God, you were captive to Satan, but God, so that now Christ could be your Lord and you might see his glory. You were by nature, verses 1 to 3, an object of God's wrath, but God. Verses 4 and following, you are now the recipients of His mercy and grace and love and kindness in Jesus Christ. Think of that. God's wrath was rightly resting on your head, and now, through the gospel, He has poured every ounce of His wrath upon His Son, so that for you it might be mercy and grace and love all the time. He has so completely poured His wrath on His Son that He has nothing but mercy and grace and love and kindness for you all the time. This is the good news of the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. We were sinners, but God is a Savior. Are you seeing that? I mean, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. We were spiritual corpses, and yet God in mercy and grace, looked at our rotting, putrefied spiritual corpses at our graves, and he looked and he said, I want that mess. And before the foundation of the earth, he turns to Jesus and he says, Will you die to redeem that mess? And and Jesus comes. and, And Jesus lives the perfect life, free from trespasses and sins. While we were dead in our sin... And dead to God, alive to sin, Jesus was dead to sin and alive always to God. While we walked step after step in trespass and sin, Jesus walked step after step in perfect obedience to God. While we gratified the sinful flesh and our passions, Jesus treasured God above all things. While we were captive to this world and following the enemy, Jesus unwaveringly, uncompromisingly, perfectly follows his Father. While we by nature were objects of wrath, Jesus by his very nature is both perfect God and sinless man. He is everything we are not. And yet upon the cross, he who knew no sin becomes sin for us. And everything that we are is poured on him, so that everything he is is transferred to us. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. If all of that is true, then really one question remains. And that is how does that become true for us? How how does that happen? Listen to me, I'm telling you the truth. I really believe to the depth of my heart that God brought you here even today in love and in mercy to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ so that you can have come here at 4 p.m. dead in your sins but you can leave here at 5 p.m. alive in Christ. You may have come here at 4 p.m. following the pattern of this world and the prince of the power of the air. You can leave here raised with Christ and seated in the heavenly places. You may have come here at 4 p.m. an object of God's wrath. I'm telling you, you can leave here at 5 an object of God's mercy and His grace and His love and His kindness. How does that happen? It's our last verses. This is what he says. For by grace you have been saved. Through faith, and this not your doing, it is the gift of God. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. How does it happen? It happens, one, by grace. You are saved by grace. Unearned, unmerited, undeserved grace from God. When you could not take a step towards Him, He has taken the step from heaven to earth Towards you. It happens by grace. It's a gift. It's a gift. You don't work for it, you don't earn it, you don't repay it, you receive it for what it is, a gift. Let me give you an example. Two good friends of mine are Joe and Derek, who live in Boston. And something that Joe and Derek love to do is they love to take me out to eat. Right? So whenever we go out, if it's up to me, we end up at McDonald's because I can afford the dollar menu and that's about it. But with Joe and Derek, we always end up with a nice sit-down restaurant with a booth and a waiter, which I've never seen, and appetizers and free refills on your drinks and dessert, the whole bit. So they say they take me to the most expensive restaurant in Philadelphia. And say we sit down and we order drinks and appetizers and a main meal and then a dessert on top. mean we just go crazy and say the bill comes out and at that moment I think to myself you know what I'm going to reach into my pocket I'm going to pull out a few bucks and I'm going to leave the tip and by me leaving the tip I've repaid my friends we're even we'll just call it fair what would you say you would say you cheap Indian do not do not spoil the gift with such an improper response. Don't ruin their generosity with such a ridiculous response. What you should do is just receive the gift for what it is. You can't repay it. You can't pay your way out of this restaurant. Just receive the gift. So it is with you and I, with God. We imagine that because of a few prayers that we've prayed, or church services we've attended, or because of a few things we've done, we have bridged the gap. That it took the death of his son to bridge. We're even. God owes us. Do not ruin the gift of his son with such an improper response. You don't repay Jesus Christ. You humbly receive it for what it is. A gift that you could never repay. He has paid a bill you could never pay. So receive it. Because you see, what, what if I was in that restaurant and I pulled out a few bucks and I said to them, Listen guys, I could never repay you for this. Could I just leave the tip as just a gesture of my gratitude? Now that horrible response is actually a beautiful response. Verse 10 tells us that in the gospel, Jesus has recreated us now for good works. So we're about good works. But we do them not to earn God's salvation, but in response to His salvation. We don't do them to pay the bill. We do them because He has already paid the bill. And what we do, we do as a gift, as a, as a, gener- as a gratitude to God for His gift. Amen. We respond to the gift of salvation. It is by grace. It is through faith. That means you bank your life on it. Not just that you know historically a man named Jesus died, but that to the depth of your soul you're banking your whole reality on that truth. You're banking your life on it. You, you, You give up every attempt of your own and you bank your life on this reality in the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's by faith. You repent and you believe, for it is by grace that you have been saved, through faith, and it is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, so that there is no boasting. I need you to hear that. There's no boasting in the gospel. No boasting. I, I want to leave you with a story. If you remember in John chapter 9, the Apostle John tells us that Jesus went to the town of Bethany, and he had a friend there named Lazarus who had died. And Lazarus is in the grave, and four days pass, and Jesus goes and resurrects him. Now, if you could follow Lazarus with a camera, and follow him a week later as Lazarus is sitting in Bethany with his boys, could you ever imagine Lazarus saying to them, Do you know I was dead? But I came back to life. I mean, it takes a pretty special guy to come back to life. You know, there's a thousand people who are still dead, but but I came back to life. You would never hear that. What would you hear if you saw a camera and Lazarus with his boys at Bethany? You would hear him going, I was dead. And I have no idea. There's a thousand graves in Israel. And I don't know why he came to mine, but he came to mine and he called me out and I was now alive. I didn't do anything. I, I can't believe it. I was dead, but now I am alive. He did it. He called me out and somehow life came back to this dead body and I was brought forth from the grave. Amen. There is no boasting in the gospel because you have done nothing in salvation and God has done everything. All of it. It is by grace you have been saved through faith and this not of your own doing. It is the gift of God not of works so that no one may boast. So then brothers and sisters how will you respond today? If you've come here and you're not a Christian, you can engage these truths. You can wrestle with these truths. You can even have come dead and leave alive. You can repent and and confess that Jesus is right. We are the kind that love the darkness and hate the light. We are dead in our trespasses and sins. That apart from His grace, there is nothing Godward in us. And you can believe, you can put your faith in the Gospel Not in what you do to get to God, but what God has done to get to you. And if you come here and you're a Christian, listen to me. If there is an ounce of spiritual vitality in your being, if there is an ounce of spiritual life in you, you owe it all to the mercy and grace of God. Like the rest of mankind, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. We were by nature objects of wrath. But God, being rich in mercy and in great love for us, made us alive with Christ Jesus even while we were dead in our sins and seated us in the heavenly places with him. So then you can leave here humbly giving God thanks for what he has done in your soul. The gospel is the bad news that we are sinners, but it is the great, good, glorious news that that Jesus is a Savior. Let's pray.